0: The National Archives podcast series, Time Travel, a journey through the timetables of the London, Brighton and South Coast Railway, 1860 to 1901. This afternoon's talk is going to have a look at the probably not very inspiring topic of railway timetables. The subject itself actually is quite fascinating because when you look beyond what the timetables will tell you, if you wanted to get from A to B, they can actually tell you an awful lot more. So what I propose to do this afternoon is to give you a brief history of railway timetables, something that we all take for granted today. But when passenger services started in the 1830s, they were quite unknown, quite unusual, and there was some resistance towards having them. So I'm going to have a look at a couple of aspects that the railway timetables can show you, not only from getting from A to B, but also give you a sense of how life in the 19th century with the arrival of the railways made a tremendous difference in terms of how distance and time were related and how distant places seemed not that far away. The other aspect I'm gonna look at is the frequency of the train services as they developed through the 19th century. At one time, a journey that may take you all day by horse and cart or on foot, you could do by train several times a day. So, the options and the possibilities that the railways brought to people in the 19th century were quite considerable. And we're going to finish our journey with I'm sure uh, our self-appointed station master keeping an eye on time that we arrive on the button. We're gonna finish our journey at Broadbridge in the parish of Bosham in West Sussex. And there I'm gonna have a look at the impact that increasing railway services had on the local community. The railway timetables themselves don't necessarily make a very good image for projection they are quite complicated, they are quite dense. So before I get into um, the actual talk proper, can I just say that I'm the editor of the Friends of the National Archives magazine. We are a voluntary and charitable organisation that supports the work of the National Archives, both financially in funding projects, but also practically in terms of helping with transcription and cataloguing. So the work that we do in support of the National Archives is very, very important. And to give you a flavor of some of the things that we're involved in, you have with my compliments this afternoon, a free copy of our latest magazine, which comes out three times a year. My background is also a lecturer in social sciences at the Open University in the Southeast. And given my background, You may expect that after this talk, lecture, that there will be an examination. And you would be right. (laughs) And I have a question for you. What I'd like to know from what you're about to see is, in January 1878, at what time did the Down Goods train from Three Bridges leave Shoreham? That is something to mull over as we as we work our way through. Okay, so initially when passenger services started the publication of Times was, was not a foregone conclusion. There was a considerable reluctance on the part of the railway companies in the 1830s to publish Times at all. There were concerns about the weather, concerns about running conditions and in those early days also concerns about the reliability of locomotives. But one thing which I think is quite fortunate for the passenger, there was one rule which they felt had to be kept and that was that every train left on time what time it might arrive somewhere else (laughs) was not necessarily uh, that assured or guaranteed. The first timetable that was published was in 1838 by the London and Birmingham Railway Company. And they published a list of times for the service from Euston to Tring. And a little bit later on, Other railway companies followed sort in in fashion. But there was one particular problem and that particular problem was that there was no national time. Everywhere was local time. Here at Kew today, under local time in the old days, we are 12 minutes ahead of Liverpool. And I think between Norfolk on the East Coast and Penzance, there's a span of about 30 minutes. During the days of the stagecoach, that didn't necessarily matter too much. You could never get anywhere quick enough or with such precision that there being a difference of 12 minutes or half an hour would have any effects on you at all. But one of the difficulties was that some railway companies published times when they did publish times in London time and some used local time. In the very early 1840s, the Great Western Railway published a very complicated timetable that included the time variation between their principal stations and London time. So it was very, very confusing. So two things were happening at this particular point. The railway companies were being confronted by the possibility of having to declare what service that they were running so that people knew what train to catch and when to catch it and at what time. And also resolving the issues around local time. The government left the issue to be sorted out amongst the railway companies for the railway companies to reach a consensus. But as the network developed, and it did develop quite rapidly, there became a very, very pressing need to have a better integrated running schedule, both within companies and between companies for onward journeys. Large junctions were developing, more people were travelling, and so there was a greater need to bring some regularity to the whole process. Even as late as 1851, when the Doncaster to Barnsley Passenger Service started, the South Yorkshire Railway published a timetable. It didn't have any times. It gave a list of destinations. It gave the fares. It ordered passengers that there will be no smoking on the train or on the stations and in a sense, also gloomily warned the passengers that there was no guarantee of punctuality. So our poor, hapless traveller in those days was left in wonderment, I assume, and that arrival time was also the time when the train was due. Over the period of time, with much better technology, improvement in reliability of locomotives, things began to settle down and some element of precision did come into the proceedings. So the timetable was quite a revolutionary aspect in those days because up until that point, much of people's lives was governed by seasonality and the weather. You either could or couldn't do something or could or couldn't do something easily depending on what the weather was doing. That was beginning to change with the Industrial Revolution and then somebody had the bright idea of sticking some wheels onto a steam engine and the rest, as they say, is history. So we get to a point where the timetable has entered into pe- begun to enter into people's lives and an expectation of what they can do and when they can do it. And alongside the timetable, there is another word that entered into the language and that's one that you probably have heard of and that is Bradshaw. George Bradshaw was an individual who decided that there needed to be a composite collective set of timetables for all the services in Great Britain and subsequently also for some services in continental Europe. He first started publishing in 1842 and this went through until the final edition in 1961. But it was devilishly difficult. It was very, very complex. And when Bradshaw first started, there was huge resistance from the railway companies because they felt that by publishing their times, they were in some way going to be obligated to punctuality. That may seem quite strange to think about this today, but that was a very, very strong concern. Very, very strong concern. I think because of public demand, and the need for people to know that was eventually overcome. But Bradshaw did have a certain notoriety and I will read briefly a passage that does reflect the complexity that some people felt about it. And this was Tolstoy talking in 1869 and he's trying to work out his arrival time in Glasgow. And he complains that without an amount of continued study of Bradshaw for which I have neither strength nor mental ability, that he couldn't work out what time he was going to arrive in Glasgow. And Oscar Wilde also commented that he would rather lose a train by the ABC than catch it by Bradshaw. The ABC, the alphabetical railway guide, was first produced in 1853 and that was very similar to Bradshaw, although in some respects it was less complicated and a little bit easier to read. Generally, we can divide timetables up into four types. There is the public timetable that you and I are all familiar with today. They do come in various guises, some are are quite small, some are a bit more substantial. And they give the times of the services available to the public. The other type of timetable is either variously known as the working timetable or private timetable or service timetable. And these were the operational documents of the railway company, which set down the schedule of all the different services because it wasn't just passenger trains. There were goods trains in those days and think in particular about the number of coal trains that they would have needed to have had because of the amount of coal that was needed to be shifted around the country because that was the primary source for for power and fuel. All those had to be integrated into the system in some way in addition to the specials, the excursion trains and also moving stock around the network that was empty to get it in the right place to provide a service the next day. So the the working timetables are quite a Interesting document in themselves to look at but they were a vital functioning tool for the railway employees and every railway employee was obliged to know exactly what his responsibility was as set down within the timetable because it included the regulations as well. The other aspect that we have in terms of timetables is those that were published in newspapers and in the early days when railway companies were very uh, reluctant to publish times, it sometimes fell to the lo- local station master, his initiative, either to publish times by handbill or to publish something in a local newspaper. And the last aspect that I've referred to is, of course, the, the railway guide, the Bradshaws and uh, ABC. And there were a number that came and went over the period, but none were in any way a threat or a challenge to either Bradshaw or the ABC, which in its various guises still still exists today. So that's a very brief potted history of where we are with railway timetables. What I now do is to look at one particular company, the London, Brighton and South Coast Railway Company is a railway company dear to my heart. I did a PhD thesis looking at aspects of, of the railway company and looked at records here. The company was formed in 1848 with a combination of the London and Brighton Railway Company, the London and Croydon Railway Company and the Brighton and Chitterstone. The network from London Bridge and subsequently in the 1860s from London, Victoria as well, extended down to the south coast from Hastings in the east through to Chichester in the west and then onwards to Portsmouth in Hampshire. Now for the purposes of my talk this afternoon, I'm going to be looking at the, the stretch of railway line that runs from Brighton past Chittister, on towards Portsmouth. Two particular points to note. We're going to finish there at Bosham, at just about three o'clock, fingers crossed. Um, But along the way we will look at Angmering, which is a station just to the the west of Worthing. And also, although it's not marked on this particular uh, schematic, a little station called Drayton which is just to the east of Chittester, which is quite quite close to Goodwood Racecourse. The, the railway company, London Brighton South Coast, survived until regionalisation in 1922-23. And the network is now more or less, although there's an awful lot of those lines have, have disappeared. An awful lot of lines have disappeared from that network. That is roughly the the network that is currently run by southern railways right so we we move on and have a look at some early timetables this is a public timetable from January 1869 you do have this particular one in your handout the the various histories of the london brighton and the south coast railway uh, one Howard Turner, the other one, Hamilton Ellis, uh, silent about timetables and make no mention of them at all. So, I cannot tell you precisely when public timetables were introduced by this railway company. Here at the National Archives, we have a very good collection of timetables. The public timetables Extend, this is the first one that's, that's in, in the catalogue. This is rail 9501. And they extend through to the last years of the railway company. There, there are gaps, but it's a pretty good selection of records. The working timetables that I mentioned earlier, we're quite fortunate in as much that the earliest one we have is 1853. Which gives details of how the various goods and passenger services were, in, were integrated. But, but this is a nice little publication. Um, I still do things uh, in feet and inches, so you have to bear with me. But it's a small document size. It's roughly about eight, eight and a quarter by four and three quarter inches. And it's got 60 pages. So even in, in those days, the, the railway company has been operating now for, for the best part of, of 20 years. It is quite complex and there is an awful lot of information contained in, mm. in that one small booklet. Look at the next one. This is a little bit grander. This is 1879 and the railway companies having gone from a position of being quite reluctant to publish times, they are now going the other way and producing some very attractive and very informative documents. This particular one is a little bit larger now. It's getting towards being the size of a small directory. Its price is tuppence, and it has quite a few pages in it now. It's uh, approaching over 100 pages. Uh, The picture itself hasn't quite sort of captured the. Sort of, the colour really is more that darker colour pink. But this particular one is promoting the relationship and services between the, the Brighton company and the Isle of Wight Railways. And there was a, a, a lot of, I won't say competition, that's not strictly true, there, there was a lot of um, sense to bring railway companies together and share services to increase the possibility of revenue for everybody's benefit. And around the the outside of the crest, you've got the various principal stations of London Brighton and South Coast Railway. These are very, very, very tightly bound in big volumes and it is very difficult to open them out properly to get a really good image, so what I've done is to just briefly select the ones that look a little bit more interesting. But they are worth a look in the raw. We're still in 1879 and it's seaside season. And this is a document that is publishing the excursion programme to various places south of London and indeed even further south, routes to Paris very much with an eye for the holiday maker and the person travelling abroad. And in that document there is a list of the various um, schedules and also fares that are available. This is one of my favourites. 1899, we've got to a telephone directory by this stage. It's a really heavy document. It's certainly no pocket timetable and the poor hapless traveller is going to have some task humping this around with him or her to find out the times of trains. Again, it's still only tuppence. And in fact, some from the light of London Brighton and South Coast were, were given for free. Not all, but, but some were handed out for free. And this is a very splendid cover from April and May 1899 that depicts South Sea, Ventanile, Eastbourne, Worthing and Hastings and the big picture at the bottom is Promenade at Brighton. So the the London London Brighton Company had a a good sense of its jewel in the crown which was the south coast and making sure that it was accessible to the travelling public. Right, this is where I have to ask for your forbearance because some of these may not be particularly easy to read but the point I want to make really is not that I want you to see the detail but the fact that the layout that you see today is very similar. Nothing has changed almost from their inception that the railway timetable looked very much as it does today. And this particular one, Brighton Hove, and Worthing to London gives the various times, trains during the week up to London from Worthing and also Sunday because weekday in those days was Monday to Saturday. Sunday was different but there were services every day of the week, even Christmas Day. Services ran all the year round. This is the first of the service or working timetables that i mentioned. This is the front cover for the January 1878 edition for employees. And it gives you a lot of information about how particular lines are to be worked. If you look down the left hand side you may be able to see at the bottom the various branch lines, Midhurst, Littlehampton, Bognor, Eastbourne, Hailsham how they should be worked. There's guidance about the conveyance of cattle and market trains and also various arrangements between other railway companies, Great Eastern Trains between Shoreditch and Liverpool Street which crossed over some London Brighton and South Coast Railway rails. These are big documents, they're probably about two inches thick on very fine paper with an awful lot of detail and it was a responsibility of each employee to know exactly his or her part of that particular document. And this is an interesting example of a working timetable because not only does it give you the answer to the question I posed at the beginning of the the talk, if you can remember what that question was, but it gives you an idea of how goods trains are integrated in with other passenger services. And that is the working document for the drivers, for the guards, for the people working the crossing gates, for the people who are also signalmen. That's the integrated document that tells everybody what to do and what time trains should go and where they should be going. Here we have a calendar of events. April and May 1899 again. And the railway companies are now very much to the fore in advertising events, in drawing people's attention to to various race meetings and also to the, the different services that are going to be put on to support those particular events. And these come either as part of the railway timetable itself or they come as separate sheets, or a a very slim timetable that's handed out for free. (coughs) Back to the devilish detail, but, and I don't expect you to be able to read this, but it just gives you a sense of how this setup has endured for so long. That is very familiar to us in that format now as it would have been to to the traveller in the 1870s. Here's another one and the London and Brighton did have a uh, partiality for pink for a while in their timetables. And this lists the various trains that are available and the fares that are available for excursions to, to, to various places. I'm not sure how first, the first class nine shillings would equate to to today's money, that seems quite steep I think. And that's. I think rail fares then, as now, was always a matter of some contention. Right, so having moved on to look at some of the timetables, it now gets to me to the interesting bit because this is really what I'm about. The railways entered into a four or five mile an hour world. Some of the mail coaches and other coaches, which were known as one-day flying machines, could muster nine miles an hour, which by the standard of the the late 1700s was was pretty good. was pretty good. The railway comes along and we're routinely in double figures, 20 miles an hour plus. Okay, might seem a bit slow by our, our standards, but by the standards of the day, the speed and rapidity of railways was su- of such concern that some learned medical people thought that it actually injurious to health and would be fatal if you travelled too fast. <coughs> now, from the railway timetables that I've looked at, and from my own research, I looked at a 100 random working timetables between 1853 and 1901, and that's what the next set of uh, uh, charts will be based upon. We can see that in 1850 to travel from London to Chitterster would take about 12 hours, if you were lucky. It might have needed a following wind, it might have needed several changes of good horses and more importantly it would have needed pretty good road conditions. Sussex was notorious for, for its roads. Very high quality mud. The network along the coast was a lot better um, than further in the county although the north-south routes were probably better developed. They were turnpike roads. But along the coast it was possible for the Brighton to Portsmouth coaches to, to average around 7 miles an hour. That's pretty good. Pretty good. Over time still in the coaching area, just almost on the verge of the railway era in Sussex. The time had come down to about eight and a half hours, but it's still an awful long time. There's an awful long time. 1846, the railway arrives at Chitterster via Brighton. London, London Bridge in that time to Brighton, change trains, Brighton through to Portsmouth. You could get to Chitterster, in about three and a quarter hours and that is revolutionary. We take it for granted today but at that time having gone from taking 12 hours to do the journey, getting it down to eight and then being able to do it in three and subsequently as the service improves to get it down to under three hours to two and a half hours was quite remarkable and that enabled people to do unimaginable things that they couldn't have done before. They could have made a journey to a place, did what they wanted to do, and then come home on the same day. Quite unimaginable before. And there is, again, I'll read this out to you because it's a rather interesting quote from Charles Dickens. And he's talking about the way in which the railways have increased people's opportunities. I mentioned earlier from the, on the network diagram of of the railway, that there was a place called Drayton, which is just to the east of Chittister. Drayton was a station that was required to be built there by the Duke of Richmond because the Duke of Richmond owned Goodwood Racecourse. Goodwood Racecourse had been there since the early 1800s and the possibility of having a railway station close to the racecourse, albeit the racecourse was up on the downs and five miles away, nevertheless was a huge opportunity that was not going to be missed. And in the edition of Charles Dickens' weekly magazine all year round, there is actually reference to Drayton, and I'll read this to you. To run down to Goodwood and back in the day, in the hottest week of the entire year. To sit for hours in a stuffy railway carriage, to scramble for the fly, to drive through the whirlwind of dust between the railway station and the park, and to go through it all again in the stifling heat of early evening. And after having lost all one's money. (laughs) It is a trial that none but the really determined Turfites, an unusual word, will undergo. (laughs) And so it was possible to catch the 7 o'clock train from London, travel down to Drayton, you'd arrive there by 10 o'clock, spend all day losing your money, and you could be back home in town early evening. Not possible before, but it is now, courtesy of the London Brighton and South Coast Railway. (laughs) By the end of the 19th century, more or less, peak had been achieved. London to Chittister, two hours. And that was fairly regular from from there on in. Does anybody know what the journey time might be today? It's not 1 hour 58. (laughs) It's it's very similar because I've used the service from Gatwick to Portsmouth. Well actually, from London Victoria to Chittister, the Southern run a regular service now and it's 1 hour 32 minutes. That is in the current timetable, 1 hour 32. Is that via this route or the more direct route? Through, uh, this is via a more direct route, but then after 1853, the what's known as the Mid-Sussex Line was opened in the 1860s, which, for those of you who, who know Sussex, comes down through Crawley and Horsham down to Arundel and joins the coastline uh, at Ford. Um, that is now now the main route down to Chichester, and it's one hour 32, compared to 1894, Mm. which is two hours. I've taken the the fastest trains. Yes, there was the stopping train, and yes, it would have taken all day, but I've just taken, in this particular case, the fastest routes. So yes, in some cases, you could probably add another half hour onto that, because what happened later on into the early 20th century was that seemingly rail travel got slower because there were more stations built and there were more stops to make. So that did tend to, tend to skew the figures. But this is the fastest possible from London to Chichester. So it, it's now one hour 32. In 1894, it was two hours. So, just moving on, because the railways the railways not only enabled you to get from A to B quicker, but it also reordered the relationship between time and distance. Ordinarily, to get somewhere further away, it would take longer. And yes, that's that's still true. Uh, to get from here to Australia takes you longer than to get from here to Chiswick. It may depend on the mode of transport, but even so, further away is still going to take you longer. But what this particular diagram shows you, and uh, it might look quite complicated at first but hopefully all will be revealed is that in 1836 to travel from Angmering which is a parish just to the west of Worthing to to Brighton it would have taken the length of the green bar and the length of the red bar. So in 1836 journey times are the green and the red added together. By 1894, there, there now being a railway station at Angmering, the journey times to all those places are just the time shown in red. And the, the length of the, the bars that are in green is the amount of time less that it takes somebody to get from, from one point in Angmering to another point elsewhere. The two places in the middle, which don't have a green bar, Rustington and East Preston, are places that are not on the railway network. So places that were not on the railway network, you are still essentially in your four or five mile an hour world. It Still takes you the same time to get to these places. But for those destinations that had a railway station, you can see that what would take somewhere in excess of three hours possibly to get from Angmering to Brighton you can do in a very short space of time, three quarters of an hour. So you can go to Brighton and you can come back again. And this in a sense is the basis of commuting. The ability to live further away from your place of work and commute. And how many of you have or do commute? Quite a few I would imagine. And it's the the rapidity of the service that has enabled distance not to be such a barrier that it was before the the arrival of the railways. Not only (laughs) were the railways making life quicker and you could get to places quicker and, and have more time to do things and come back but also the level of services was increasing as well. And this particular chart shows you the the increase in services at various points, 1840, 1849, 59, 67, 79, 89 through to 1899. And you can see quite clearly that there is almost a continuous growth in the amount of rail traffic along the coastline from Brighton through to Portsmouth. And not only is it passenger traffic, but also the amount of goods traffic that's increasing as well. It's very, very, very significant. This next one, 1864 to 1901, it lists all the stations on the particular piece of line that we're talking about along the south coast. And the one thing that becomes quite noticeable is that some places are more important than others. And some of this is partly due to the stagecoaches and the stagecoach network, because the stagecoach network had a priority of places where it stopped and some places where it didn't stop at all. But at a very early stage in the the railway company's history, there was a sense that trains would not stop at every station. And So from a very early stage, you've got the the concept of the express train, the semi-fast and the slow train that stopped everywhere and took for ages. When you look at some of the spikes, Shoreham for example, and Ford, <coughs> there's nothing at Ford, it's a, junction. it's a junction. And a lot of junction stations obviously had more traffic, there was, there was more going to and fro, leaving and departing. And the same at Chitterster, that was a junction station for the Midhurst Line, and also Shoreham, and we saw um, timetable earlier for Shore. Shoreham to Horsham at Barnum. Yes, yes. It was it was once said that nowhere in Sussex was was further than five miles from a railway line. And there were railway lines all over Sussex, including abandoned ones that were never finished. It's not like that today. So by looking at the timetables you can see quite quickly there is a hierarchy of services within the network. And sometimes these reflect what's already there and sometimes it reflects where the station was put. If the station is five miles out of the village and there are places where stations are named at something but they are some some distance from where they're actually named after, um, not a lot of trains stop there and initially some of these stations were put there because of pressures from local worthies who wanted their own station and so the station was built but then was not necessarily used that much afterwards. So that gives you an interesting idea of the fact that not only is everything speeding up, but also that there is more of it. And the more of it is quite selective. Some stations do quite well, some stations uh, do, do, do less well. <coughs> when the London and Brighton first opened in 1840, from Brighton through to Shoreham, Hove, who some of you may know, there's a, quite a busy suburb of, of, of Brighton now, had one train a day. One in the morning one way, one in the evening the other way. was it. Now it's one of the busiest stations along the, along the coastline. Another way of, of interpreting the material from the timetables is not only looking at how fast things have gone, how th- quickly things are, how greater the, the, the frequency of trains services have become but also what's actually happening on the line. Where are all these things happening? Where are all these trains? And to put this into perspective for you, you've got the, <coughs> the list of stations down the side and the box or the gap between the station is the space between the stations for real. And this is a snapshot taken in the timetables from 1853 to 1897 at 9 o'clock in the morning and 6pm in the evening. And in 1853, at 9am in the morning, on the stretch of line between Brighton and just beyond Bosham, there was one down goods, And when I say down in railway terms that means something that's travelling south and west and up is something that's travelling east and north to London. And at nine o'clock in the morning there is an up passenger service at Stand at Chitterstown. So, and at Worthing also there is a down passenger train. So there are three trains on on the line at nine o'clock in the morning. So that gives you a sense of how busy things are. And over the period of of years, you will see, particularly when you get to 1897, there are still, by our standards, not many trains, but there's still one, two, three, four, five, six. Six trains at various points along that particular stretch of railway line. And that is quite helpful for somebody like me, who's an historical geographer, to to look at the impact of the railway and how it actually influences people around the railway network. Um, One of the early concerns and one of the strong complaints that was made about the railway was the noise and the smoke and the ash that it would bring through the countryside. And David Lyons, who was resident at Goring Hall, Lions, the Lions family connected to Bo's lions, the Queen Mother's family, was a vehement um, person against the railway coming through because of the noise, the ash, the smoke. And there are s- uh, several references to this in 19th century novels, Charles Dickens in particular, making reference to the unhealthy nature of the railway. But by looking at it in this way you can begin to see what kind of impact it may have had. We're nearly at journey's end. This is Broadbridge Crossing at Bosom in western Sussex, or West Sussex from 1888. The, the old station building was rebuilt in 1904 together with a brand new signal box which is just on the bottom corner, now long gone. The parish lies to the west of Chittister. It's at the north end of Chittister Harbour. And Bosnum itself is quite famous for its connection to King Harold. And Bosnum is depicted in the Bayeux Tapestry as well. And it's also the place where King Canute had an encounter with the tide. But more importantly for our purposes, the railway station opened there in March 1847. Now this may be the only railway lecture that you ever attend where the London Brighton and South Coast Railway, King Harold and the Bayeux Tapestry and King Canute in order of historical importance, are uttered in the same breath. So this has been recorded for prosperity. The station here is quite interesting because the line is is, is very flat. It's coastal plain, so it's very flat. It's one of the easiest pieces of engi- railway engineering in the country, I would have thought. Very, very flat, very easy. But there's an enormous number of crossings. And it would have cost a fortune to have either put an overbridge or an underbridge or diverted roads and so there are something like a dozen crossings in this particular part of the network. And I'd like to, to spare a thought, if you will, for the crossing keepers because the difference between the increase in rail service between 1853 and 1899 is quite significant. The power blue is 1853 where you get one train an hour one way or the other peaking at a maximum of two trains per hour. But by 1899 you will see that in many cases the number has gone up to four even six per hour. Now the London Brighton and South Coast, in keeping with quite a lot of other railway companies, employed women as crossing keepers. That was quite a, a, a common feature. And it usually was husband and wife. The, the husband worked on the railway, plate layer, ganger, porter, something like that. And it was the wife who was the crossing keeper. So I think if you bear in mind of the old ways in which gates were opened initially by hand and later by capstan wheel, but initially by hand these very small country crossings. We all know what five minutes means. Five minutes can be quite a long time, but to close a gate in time for the train to pass through, and then to reopen it again afterwards, we we'll say it is five minutes, it's probably longer than that. But if you've got six trains an hour, the gates are shut for half an hour of every hour, at the six trains. There's a huge amount of effort involved. In the 1901 census of bosom I'd like you to spare a thought for Thomas Dewdney and Lee Harrison, who were the signalmen at this particular crossing. And at the two crossings further west, going towards Hampshire, there was James and Mary Bowles, and Absalom and Anne Bowles. Now Anne Bowles in 1901 was 62 and she's the crossing keeper. So they've got their work cut out. By 1904 a new signal box comes and a capstan wheel so the closing and opening of gates becomes that much easier. But that represents quite a a significant effort. So that's, if you like, the impact. It's very nice for us, we can catch a train any time we want, more or less, but spare a thought for the poor Crossing Keeper. If only, if only because today, Southern run roughly 10 to 12 trains an hour, three bosom. It does vary because there's a peak service and and an off-peak service. So if we were operating under the old conditions, they're working at 12, tra- 12 trains an hour, there wouldn't be much time to put the kettle on. And that may possibly be one of the reasons why we have automatic barriers today. That's a very, very quick skip through the timetables of the London, Brighton and South Coast Railway. It's not just helped you to get from A to B um, or know when you should have got somewhere, but find you're not, you're somewhere else. Um, But more importantly, what the railway timetables can also show us about how society was ordered around the functionality of the railway and the different kind of things that you can pull out from those particular documents. The documents themselves, some of the later ones, the one we looked at for 1899, is a directory in itself. It's not just about times, it's about people advertising and it makes, sadly, a fascinating read, not only for the Times themselves, but also for the other information that's been, been involved in there. Well, we've actually arrived ahead of time. Uh, thank, thank you very much for taking the time out for your various endeavours from research this afternoon, and uh, I, I wish you well with one, of course, traditional, as we've reached our destination. So, thank you very much. This event was recorded live on the 23rd of June 2011 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.